0: If you stare into fire, it will put you in the trance. It's the oldest mind machine we have. And as long as people have had fire, they've been doing this. And shamans, as you said, like some of the shamans might have combined staring into the fire with some kind of, you know, spirit walking cocktail that they made. Like, I think these days they do something called the ayahuasca down in the Brazilian rainforest. They go on a spirit quest, but something like that, would they would have done that. But then they would have been staring into the fire. And then the medicine man would probably get up and start, you know, doing his thing after he was in trance.
1: Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life.
2: We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast.
1: So today you're going to hear from Christopher Charles, who's been involved with light and sound mind machine technology since the 1980s and has worked with a wide variety of manufacturers and researchers in the industry. I'm really pleased to get the chance to engage in some discussion about neurotechnology. Christopher, so welcome. Thanks for coming along today.
0: Thanks for having me, Naomi. Morning, but it's good evening over there, but it's good morning over here.
2: Hi, Christopher. Thanks very much for coming along. It's really nice to meet you. Can we perhaps begin with you telling us a bit more about your background and how you came to be so involved in technology that can apparently optimize the mind? And what does that actually mean? Well,
0: interestingly enough, I sort of stumbled into it as I was out of high school. So as I was much, I've been doing this since the 1980s when I was much younger. And I had stumbled into this bookstore and they had this device on the counter and it said it was a brain machine. And it was a pair of glasses with a control box and some headphones, flashing lights. And they would let you try it or they said you can ride the brain machine. And they had a chair, you lean back and you could put it on and try it once for 15 minutes. And I did, and I had the money and I bought one. And pretty soon I had all of my friends coming over to the house, taking turns using it. And that's how it all began, using that machine. That was an old Interquest IQ Tutor, I believe, which is the very first company back in the 1980s that was really getting somewhere with this light and sound uh, brainwave and treatment technology was called Interquest. And I happened to be living in Tennessee, which was next to Arkansas, which is where Interquest was. Interestingly enough, back then, that company was actually selling a million dollars worth of equipment a month. And the governor of Arkansas declared them to be like business of the year. And it was a really, you know, it was groundbreaking. But because we were so close, it was it had made some market penetration into that area. And I just got, in, and that's how I started with it. I started with it as somebody who tried it. I was like, wow, this is really cool. I bought one, used it all the time. My friends came over to use it. And then after years of using it, I became more interested in the mechanics of how it worked and learned from that device, read a lot, got to meet a lot of people and talk to them, and then just made my way into that industry and connecting with all the people in it. And that went on and it continues today.
2: Thank you. So Christopher, just to help me out a bit, because my memory of the seventies and eighties isn't that good, but what I do remember was that there were biofeedback machines is, does this bear any relationship to, to those kinds of machines? That's a very good question. So biofeedback
0: is taking information, usually from electrodes, EEG, and then taking it, analyzing it, and then feeding a signal back. So light and sound technology is actually maybe better described as biofeed-in because there is no analysis. It is simply sent from the control box and the lights and the sound to your brain with a pre-programmed session. So I guess I should say that these devices, light and sound devices, which is how we're starting this discussion, are computer controlled facilitators of a program of brainwave frequencies that change over time. And so for example, typical light and sound machines will have a program for relaxation. Well, it will start in a brainwave frequency that's not so relaxing and ramp down into a relaxing frequency and then continue and maybe meander there. And then after a period of time, if it's sort of like a coffee break and then go back to work session, after a period of time, it's going to bring you back up to regular consciousness and then the ride is over. And that pre-programmed pattern is taking you on a journey in your mind that's changing how you feel. Also, it's going to you know relax you, work. In another situation, there might be one that's the opposite, that's to energize you. And it's going to bring you up higher in frequency and make you more alert. So light and sound machines use what is called the frequency following response. And that is that the brain will mimic controlled patterns of sound and light that are in, as, you know, originally light, but sound also, um, if you go back to the original, e.g., was being invented and discovered back in the 1920s and the 1930s, that's when scientists realized that the brain will mimic controlled patterns of light. So, you know, if you take a strobe light and you flash that strobe light at seven hertz per second or seven pulses per second, people's brains will start to resonate around that seven hertz. And if you have a room full of people and you flash them with a strobe light at seven cycles per second, their brains will start to mimic seven cycles per second. And this is old science going back, like I said, to the 1930s. And that's how they were able to figure out how to make EEG to measure brainwaves. Then as we got into the 70s, well, the 60s, but more in the 70s, things started, electronics came into play and people made rudimentary devices that were maybe a little more sophisticated than just a regular strobe light that they would use to create a meditation state because they would take the frequency and, you know, bring it from maybe 14 hertz, which is like a very alert beta state or SMR state where you're, you know, paying attention and focused and bring bring it down into the alpha and maybe even into the theta stage where everybody, a state, sorry, (laughs) frequency range, that everybody experiencing it would be brought down into this meditation state. And they weren't, you know, the computer control was not so sophisticated in the 70s. When the 80s came along, microprocessing, it evolved even more. And that's when you start to see the first light and sound machines that have programs in them where it's just a unit for one person to use with the glasses and headphones, almost like a Walkman. If you were back in the 80s, there were Walkman. It was a headphones and a cassette deck that you would carry around with you, little one, a very popular. Well, this was like for the mind, the Walkman for the mind, so to speak. And they came into play in, in the 80s. And then, as we got into the 90s, computing was even more sophisticated, and more players came in, and more manufacturers came in and started making these devices. And today, there's a wider assortment of them than ever. Most of them are this entrainment type device where it is pulsing a frequency, and that is the frequency it wants you to, you know, the, that it is entraining your brain to. And that's what the goal of the session is. So, you know, if it's a relaxing one, it's going to be a slower frequency, or if it's going to be a sleep one, it's going to be a much slower frequency in that delta range down below four cycles per second. And that'll help you fall asleep. But the thing about a light and sound entrainment device is it is always telling your mind what to do, not what not to do, but what to do. So let's have more of this frequency. Let's have more of that frequency. And in our later discussion, you'll see why I'm bringing this up, but I might be going on too long. So if you want to cut me off here, I can run run like a train off the hill with this information. I might have even deviated from your question.
2: I'm I'm fascinated by your connection with the uh, Sony Walkman because I had a very <laughs> early venture. so it's bringing back fond memories. Although I can see it's not the same thing at all. But are, are there particular brainwave frequencies that are better for us to experience, or does it depend entirely on what we want? Really, what the need is. That's a great question, and it's what's appropriate. So, for example, when
0: you're sleeping, you know your your brain isn't primarily two states. It's in theta when you're dreaming and in delta when you're in dreamless sleep. And when you're in delta, that's when your body is regenerating. So when you're dreaming, your body is not repairing itself. Your body's doing the repair work when you're in dreamless sleep sleep in the delta frequency range. So your sleep pattern tends to go in, you know, every 45 minutes or so you go in and out of a dream state. And then I could have the number, not quite exactly because it varies, but regardless, there's a cycle that you follow while you sleep. And during the cycle where you're at the deepest level of sleep, your body's regenerating. So I'm answering the question by saying that that's appropriate for that time. Now, in another circumstance, you might be an athlete and you're just about to hit the maybe a baseball player, or I think you guys have cricket there, right? That's kind of like baseball, right? So with a bigger bat (laughs) and a slightly different ball. Anyway, you know, that person is very focused. And they're ready to make the move. That is the sensory motor response range, which is from 13 to 15 hertz, 13, 14, 15. It's like with a cat. If you've ever watched a cat, it's watching and it's getting ready to pounce, And it's just laser focused on whatever it's going to attack next. And, you know, maybe you've got a toy or there's a mouse or a bird or something and it's waiting and, and it can just lunge at any moment. So that's appropriate to that state. When you are meditating, you know, you want to be in more of an you know, a theta or alpha theta range where you're deeply relaxed. So the mind state is appropriate to what you're doing. When you know you start to run into problems when you have a mind state that is not appropriate to what you're doing. For example, if you're supposed to be focused and concentrating on taking a test at school, but you're too busy daydreaming and you can't focus, then it's inappropriate. So it really, I guess to answer your question, I maybe I could have done it shorter, but I hope this was a good explanation, that it's the frequency that's appropriate to what you're doing at the time.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that's very clear. But early on, before we even started recording, you, you mentioned sitting around a campfire, a flickering campfire, and shamanistic activities. So, are you suggesting really that this kind of desire for changes in brain brainwave function goes back a long, a long way?
0: It goes back as far as we humans go, and probably even to protohumans. You know, Cape men, and you know before we got to homo-, homo sapiens. Yes, absolutely. There is an innate desire of humans to want to go into trance. And there are a lot of different ways of doing it. But in ancient cultures, I mean, the first thing that really brought people together and helped them survive was fire. Fire was, not only was fire a life giver, fire you know, could protect you from dangerous animals coming too close at night. It kept you warm. It was... How we cooked food, you know, or, or, or I should say, our ancestors, our great, 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 great ancestors, did that. But also, so there. Not only was fire, but there was a magic kind of element to it because at night there was no TV, there's no cell phones, there's no. You know, maybe they had some. They might have had some rudimentary musical instruments that were, you know, like a some kind of drum that they made out of an animal skin and various kinds of. You think about the kind of instruments that the Aborigines use in Australia. And it might give you an idea what some of these musical instruments that they might have made by hand out of animal parts and such. And they might have been playing around the fire. But so they probably had a sound component or they would have been chanting. And you, you know, you see that also like Native Americans, they would have like a fire dance and stuff and that they have chants that they do. Actually, like even to this day, you have in the, you know, the, like the Tibetan Buddhists, they have chants that they do. So they probably chanted. In some way, they probably had instruments and they sat there and they weren't watching TV. They were staring into the fire and fire flickers in the alpha theta brainwave range. It's not a set frequency. It's just kind of flickering through that range. So if you stare into fire, it will put you in the trance. It's the oldest mind machine we have. And as long as people have had fire, they've been doing this. And shamans, as you said, like some of the shamans might have combined staring into the fire with some kind of, you know, spirit walking cocktail that they made. Like, I think these days they do something called the ayahuasca down in the Brazilian rainforest. They go on a spirit quest, but something like that, would they would have done that? But then they would have been staring into the fire. And then the medicine man would probably get up and start, you know, doing his thing after he was in trance. So absolutely, this is something we've been doing forever. It's just that computer technology has made it smaller, easier, smarter, and portable, and predictable, and also controllable, so it's not just alpha-theta, but it could be other things, at least when we're talking about the entrainment part.
2: Well, I, I certainly spend many hours staring into the fire in my house during our long, dreary winters over here. I kind of know what you're talking about. So what do we know about the ability of light and sound to calm the nervous? How does that I actually happen? Well,
0: by stimulating or disentraining, which we'll talk about in a little while, but by encouraging the brain to adopt a certain pattern of frequency, and the pattern of frequency is going to correspond to how you feel. So if your brainwave frequencies are really high and you're in like a higher beta range, you could be very excited and agitated. Like when you're in a state of panic, you know, your frequencies are much higher. Whereas when you're you know, sitting back watching fire, you're very relaxed and sitting back in your chair and very content because your brainwave frequencies are lower. So it's the brain, it's it's the light and the sound that entrains your brain or changes your brainwaves that changes how you feel. So there's that step in between. Does it make sense?
2: Yeah. So just to clarify though, for me, what kind of effects do we see when we harness light and sound? Well, if you
0: are. It kind of depends on what your session you're choosing. So light and sound machines and training devices have a library of sessions. And you might say, well, this is an energized one. This is a relaxation one. This is a meditation one. This is a learning one that's going to put you into focus mode. So you're going to get the result that corresponds to the session that you chose for those frequencies. You know, Because the, you know, the, the frequency set that's in the session corresponds to the end goal. And that's what it's going to entrain your mind to. So it's almost like having a, you know, like a remote control or a TV remote for your brain to say, okay, time to relax. Okay, time to focus. And that's, you know, the basis of how the entrainment device works, that it's going to encourage certain frequencies that correspond to a mind state that's going to then bring you to that state.
2: Thank you.
1: And Chris, we didn't really talk about what your role has been in this technology. So I know, I think you've got, Quite an interesting background in terms of your skill sets. Am I right in thinking you've worked in IT, but also work as a music producer? Correct. Yeah. yeah. I was just thinking about that. I wondered whether your work as a music producer has enhanced your skills and kind of like software development.
0: Absolutely.
1: I would say that producing music,
0: it's important to be very organized because if, you know, if you're producing music and you do it very haphazardly, there you're not going to get a nice polished result. So... Planning is important. Same thing with software, planning, then doing. So if you're producing music, you want to plan. It doesn't mean you're going to plan what the actual music is, but you're going to plan that, you know, you're going to have your room set up. You're going to have your instruments set up. You're going to have your mixing board set up. Everything is going to be in place and planned and ready to go. How the music gets created, that's a different story. That's going to unfold, but you're ready with your engineering for that. You plan for that. Okay, well, I know I'm going to have this. Somebody may pull out a guitar. I'm ready for that. Or there's going to be microphones for singers. I'm ready for that. But that you have a plan. And the same thing with software. Before you write a single line of code for anything, you should have looked at the problem, thought about the problem, and planned your solution. And I'm very old school in that, that I will get out you know, pen and paper and a clipboard, and I'll sketch things. And so there are some computer drafting where you can put boxes on the screen. I put it on paper first. Then I might move to something like that, but planning. So I would say that both of those disciplines have that going for them, that planning is very crucial to success in either one of them. And there's something that's, um, I mean, they're both, and you know, when you're, I would say I produce, but I engineer also. So sound engineering and producing together, it's kind of like, there. there are, there's a little bit of crossover with that with software. And I find that, Some of the thought processes are very similar. There's also a creative aspect to both of them. And in software and in uh, music, they are art forms. There are no absolute right and wrong answers. There are better answers and you can always, (laughs) here's another one, you can always make it better. If you're making a record, you can always go back and go, ah, I could go back and I could adjust that synthesizer and put a little more EQ on it. And I could have done that. And I could have brought the drum to the left a little more and so on. And you could do the same thing was I could have optimized that code and made that routine just a little shorter. And that's their iterative processes that you can just keep improving over and over again. And that's another thing that they really share in common. Maybe that's even more important. the idea of going back and making it better and better, but then knowing when to stop. Because that's the other thing. The other thing that can paralyze you, whether you're making software or music, producing music, is knowing when to stop. When is it done? Because either one of these things, you could go on forever. If you don't stop at some point where you say, okay, we're going to call it a day and it's going to be done.
1: That's very interesting. And also I think there, there's something about people who have lots of knowledge from different areas that what you can often end up with is something that's much more creative because of the, that ability to draw on knowledge from, from different areas. So the product you became involved with and are most closely associated with is the Roshi Wave range of devices. And wondered if you could tell us what they are and what they do. And I did notice you had your, your specs there, actually.
0: I actually do. I do have a, I had this on right before, where right as she brought me, brought me on. I, I had my Roshi Wave on and had my eyes closed and then the screen came up. I was like, oh, there you are. And I took it off. Yes. Yeah, so the Roshi Wave is a light only device. We were talking previously about sound and light devices, which use controlled frequencies to, you know, controlled frequency at a specific rate that may change over time, that is meant to entrain the brain or make the brain mimic those frequencies. And they look very similar. This device looks like a light and sound machine. However, there's no sound, it's just light. But what's different about Roshi Wave is it uses So. Going back into the 1990s, there was a guy named Chuck Davis. Chuck Davis was, he was an aerospace engineer, and then he got into doing EEG. So he created an EEG neurofeedback computer program and system and interfaces for uh, the Commodore Amiga computer. And that was the very first Roshi device. And His experience as being an aerospace engineer and also his very deep interest in the mind and meditation and the brain is what led him to do this. He was very obsessed with doing it, became the labor, you know, was a labor of love throughout his life. And he created this original Roshi device on computer and clinicians all around the world started using them. Now, I would say it's not like every clinician, but there was a very tight core group of clinicians that were using these. Now, what that did is it had electrodes that would analyze the brain, brain, waves, feed it through the computer system, and then the computer system would deliver light uh, stimulation based on the analysis of, of what, what it was reading for the brain waves, and it was a feedback. So he had that for many years, and over, the t- over time, he started to learn things about how just it being something that he was very obsessed with, he started to notice that there were certain things that would happen, certain things that happened in common over and over again. Well, over time, also the other thing is, is because this was a computer-based system, everything was recorded. So he could go back and look at that session and the other session and see things that that they had in common and compare and analyze. And he came up with this algorithm based on what he learned from doing all of the G. And what the algorithm does is disentrains lots of frequencies at a very rapid rate. So. You might say, okay, we were talking about entrainment and entrainment is pushing, you know, a certain frequency on us. Well, by using phase, he was able to disentrain. So saying, you know, instead of saying, here's seven hertz, do seven hertz, it's don't do seven hertz. Don't do this. 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 And what's interesting about this, and I'm going to jump a little bit ahead and then I'm going to come back and say, well, you might say, well, wait a minute. What if, it's saying don't do something that's supposed to be there. Here's the interesting part. When your brain waves are normalized and there's nothing abnormal about them, it doesn't really do anything other than it makes you you know, relaxed and feel good. But if you have an abnormal brainwave that shouldn't be there, as the algorithm is going through, that abnormal one becomes normalized. So whereas a light and sound machine has a whole bunch of di- different sessions, meditation, relaxation, learning, focus, energize, coffee break, so on. The Roshi system just says one, on or off. There's also a uh, phase order switch plus minus. But otherwise, by the way, this is an old P Roshi. So after Chuck made that computer system, he found that you don't need the computer system if you use this algorithm that he just, you know, he came up with this algorithm. He kept seeing this pattern, these patterns repeating over and over again in all of the EEG neural feedback. And he created a device that simply delivered that type of signal without the, without the uh, EEG. And obviously kind of a, this is this is a hefty box. It's, uh, well, as you can see, it's of decent size, but it's also kind of heavy and clunky to carry around. And these are some original classic P. Roshi, as in personal Roshi. So the computer system was called the Roshi. This became, whoops, upside down, the personal Roshi. And after he stopped making the EEG systems because it was like, well, what's the point in doing that when you can just treat with this and it's going to, whatever's wrong, this is going to fix it. Because all of the things, you know, if somebody would come in with a, say somebody came in with ADHD, they have an abnormal brainwave pattern or somebody had a traumatic brain injury, they have an abnormal brainwave pattern because of that as well. Well, doing EEG neurofeedback is something that clinicians do for that. Well, Chuck found that if he ran this algorithm on either one of them, he got the got the positive result. So then he put the algorithm in, the, in a box and said, oh, I'm not going to bother with making the whole analysis anymore. We're just going to make these boxes because whatever's wrong, just turn it on. And this is a fixer program. So instead of being a relaxation or a meditation, it's a fixer program. And the end goal is that it brings the brain to a, it quiets the mind, brings the brain to a normalized state. And it's a lot, it's it's a very relaxing state. It's like a, like a meditative state. Also that you're not so aware of the passing of time, which is interesting that when you get on a Roshi, you're, after a few minutes, you stop thinking. So your mind is just drawing a blank, and you're not really aware of the passing of time. I experienced this myself, and, and I love massage chairs, and I often combine massage chair with using the Roshi, and Massage chair is a thirty minute cycle on it, so after thirty minutes it beeps and it's telling you it's over. A lot of times I'll put this on and it may seem like it's only been five minutes and it's over already, and that's where you get that. And I know Naomi, you've tried using this. You well, you've <laughs> used it uh, yes, a before. And that that's a really interesting characteristic about it is that the you know your mind go, clears your mind. You're not thinking and meditation. Like a traditional straight definition of meditation is the absence of thought. The reason that they would stare into mandalas and chant or you know, all that kind of stuff is so that they couldn't be thinking about something. If you're concentrated on just concentrating on just chanting and staring into the shape or the, you know the you know what I'm talking about mandalas or the shapes mm-hmm. that they into, that you can't be thinking about anything because you're laser focused on that. Well, that's where you're not the absence of thought meditation. And this is kind of like a cheat code for that, in addition to being a fixer of various issues that people have. And clinicians use these for all kinds of disorders, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress syndrome, anxiety, inability to focus with students, which is Dr. Victoria Ebrick is kind of like the big kahuna of the Roshi world. She's been around like throughout Chuck's career. Uh, She actually published a book called The Roshi Anthology, and it's a big tome of all of the research on this technology, but you know with these open eyed glasses, you could have this and be reading and you know just be like doing nothing but your reading and which is, which is a little bit different too because we were talking I should have said that normally this is done with your eyes closed, so you put the glasses on and you close your eyes, and that's how light and sound machines that we talked about before are done and Roshi is usually done with the exception of these open eyed glasses, which are for where you're doing some kind of EEG training task at the same time. So you might combine a Roshi with an EEG training system and have something that's on the computer screen that the patient's looking at and they can look at it through this or doing some kind of task like reading. I myself, I love these when I'm mixing. If I'm mixing a record, I'll put these on and I may open and close my eyes from time to time but it puts me into that just, there's nothing else there except what I'm doing when, when I'm using these, which is very clear. And I probably once again, just took off like a shot into another direction on you, but I almost would ask you to rephrase the question if I didn't answer
1: it. No, no, that's great. And you're, cause you're obviously really passionate about them. And I suppose one of the things that I think there's such a massive evidence space of how meditation is really good for you, really good for your brain. It has really long-term benefits on our health. And yet a lot of people find it very difficult to meditate. So I think the idea that there's a cheats way to achieve that kind of state, a bit like David looking into the fire. For people who don't have fires, I think it's great that there is some way that people can achieve that and and actually find it relatively easy to do. But I, I wondered you know, is there any long-term benefit to using these devices or, you know, and if so, how does, how does that happen?
0: Ah, great question. So yeah, when you, when you use one of these devices, you get that immediate benefit. Now over time, it's almost like a conditioning and that might be a good way of putting it because whether it's, whether somebody's being treated clinically for a specific thing like post-traumatic stress syndrome, that they're doing it over, you know, over a period of time. So like, I'm going to digress slightly again and say that, like, when a patient comes in, they're using this clinically. They will be brought in, they'll have an EEG take their brain waves, they'll be treated with the signal, and then they'll take the brain waves again afterwards to show before and after. And doing this over time conditions the mind. So, the more you do, you know, if you do this on a daily basis, it will definitely change how you are every day. For example, I would say that one really great benefit for me is. You know, where I live, there can be a lot of traffic. And, you know, you could get in your car and you want to go somewhere and suddenly you're not going anywhere because there's traffic. And that could really make you angry and lose your temper. Pretty much anybody. I find that continued use of this, and I've been, I've been using my machines a long time. And I now just use the Roshi because it's so much easier and I like it better than any of the other ones. But using this, even on the broad sense of all of the light and sound technology, but I'll say more especially Rosie, Roshi, that it makes it more difficult to to make me for me to lose my temper. Like things can really annoy me. The traffic can really annoy me, but I'm not going to start banging on the steering wheel and yelling at people. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, this is a bummer. Okay, but you can deal with it. You know, I can deal with the with and that's one benefit that I've not only felt myself, but I've heard that from other people, is that it is a state conditioning thing that you just are balanced all of the time. And for people that have a condition that they're working on, you know, it's like the more they do this over time, it's tamping down that condition so they're feeling more normal and they're not having that problem. So I'd say maybe the best way of putting it is like a conditioning. You would, the other thing is, okay, if somebody's never experienced a clear mind, absent of thought, no time state, Like a super deep meditation. If they've never experienced that before and they put this on and they do and they keep doing that, you know, it's going to just keep you closer to that state. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, it's not going to teach you necessarily how to do it yourself, but I don't really want to compare it to a drug therapy. But there are medications where somebody would take the medication every day and it doesn't work the first day, like maybe it doesn't work until they've taken it for two weeks. Well, It's because they have a steady dose of it that keeps them, you know, they have their steady dose and it keeps them like that. Well, a steady dose of Roshi will keep you balanced, more balanced than you would be without it.
1: Is there any research on lights, machines that harness light therapy generally with clinical populations?
0: Definitely. That would be the book that I mentioned earlier, The Roshi Anthology by Dr. Victoria Ebrick. Uh, Mm -hmm. That is probably the gold standard of them. But there are others, but that is like the one that immediately comes to mind. And if you're very scientifically inclined and you want to read some, you know, hardcore scientific research on this, the Roshi Anthology is your book. And there is another coming out soon. Um, It's not out yet, but it's and I don't know the name of it, but there's another big like. uh, I want to try to explain what's almost like a textbook type of book that's going to be coming out. And there's supposed to be a chapter on Roshi in it, but it's not out yet. So at some later time, you know, I can get you that information. and You can let your audience know about it. But and there'll be a lot of scientific research in that. But for right now, the Roshi Anthology, many, many, many years worth of research in that on Roshi, which is light only therapy and lots of, you know, for all of you, you want to geek out with the science, that is the place to go.
1: Yeah, I've seen this, this research on its use for depression and also people with ADD, which I can include links to that in our, in our show notes, actually. David.
2: Yes, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm still thinking about the, the way that you describe these really lengthy antecedents to the human desire to alter state and alter brainwave. And, and it reminded me um, well, it reminded me of a couple of things. Uh, I heard a science program on the radio the other day, which was describing how they'd observed chimpanzees spinning in their, this in their natural state. So spinning around till they altered their sense of culture, which is, of course is what, well, it's what I did as a child, and I suspect other people did as well, doing that until you changed the state of your mind. And there weren't As far as I know, any particular dangers to that? Certainly the chimpanzees seem to enjoy doing it. Whereas for children, the only risk was falling over and bumping your head, I suppose. But do you think there are any risks or side effects to to light therapy? What about people who experience seizures? Because I mean, earlier on, you you talked about uh, strobe lighting, for example, which can trigger, as I understand, it can trigger people with epilepsy. Very good question. And I'm glad you
0: brought that up. So there are some people who are photosensitive epileptics, which means that they can have a seizure that is triggered by flashing light. And people that have that condition probably shouldn't use this technology. Or if they do, it should be under some kind of medical supervision. And there are warnings on all of these devices, you know, these devices on the websites and everything and on the actual equipment. They will have a warning on the glasses, you know, shouldn't be used by anybody with a seizure disorder. Now, those seizures. And, and by the way, there was a time when, uh, like, even to this day, video games have those warnings. They used to call them Nintendo seizures quite some time ago. But all the new video games, you got an Xbox game or a PlayStation game somewhere in there. There's that warning about, you know, flashing lights and seizures. And these people who are really like to have the condition very bad, they could be uh, you know, sitting in a car and a police car could go by with flashing lights and that could trigger a seizure. They could be driving or, and like the light is passing through leaves above them as they're going down the street and it's mm. creating a flicker and that could cause a seizure or a light that's behind a ceiling fan. People that are super sensitive to it, any kind of flashing light. However, the most likely pattern of light that's going to cause a seizure in a photosensitive epileptic is crossing through the SMRH which is 13, 14, 15 hertz. So going 13, 14, 15 or 15, 14, 13 or somewhere in that range is where all the research I've seen and heard about is that that is the most likely place to cause a seizure. You know, Roshi never sits at a frequency very long at all. It's a very short, short period of time that it's cycling through things. And many light and sound machines, if you were in a, you know, like if you were in a relaxation session, You'd never be up in that range because it would probably start at like 12 hertz and then go down, but you wouldn't be up in that SMR range. That said, people like to file lawsuits, people fake injuries and so on. Everything is warning. You know, I mean, there's a warning. Don't use it. if you If you have a seizure disorder, don't use it or use it under medical supervision. But, you know, all of the clinical data and the science that I've seen on it is that when you get into that 13, 14, 15 range of frequency, that many flashes per second, that's where it's most likely to happen. And, and you mentioned strobe lights and discos. Well, well you didn't say discos, you said strobe lights. And when you say strobe light, you tend to think disco. And nightclubs with all the lights going on, well, the kind of frequency range that a strobe light might be going at in a dance club is going to be closer to that range. It's not going to be a seven hertz low energy it's going to be faster and it's going to be in that seizure kind of range up somewhere near SMR or possibly in a little higher in beta. Cause you know, like this, the strobe lights are not in the club They're, and everybody's dancing and you know, like with the lights and uh, I'm sure maybe it's been a while since you've been to a nightclub, me too, but you know, we see them on TV, <laughs> but, uh, but yes. So, Definitely people that are photosensitive or think they might be. There's also some people that are not photosensitive seizure, but just like bright light is too much for them. And these devices, all light and sound devices, including the Roshi, have a dimmer. So if you watch these lights, I'm dimming them down. Here you can see that they're just kind of barely barely on. And it still will give you the effect as long as you can detect some light through your eyelids. Or, you know, so if you close your eyes and you can see some flicker, so some people just can't handle very bright. And I've had people where it's like, it's all the way on the lowest setting. And if I put it on and close my eyes, I can just barely detect it. And they're like, oh, that's fine. That's fine. No more. And that's enough for them. And they're happy with it. I tend to turn mine up pretty much all the way. I've been doing it for a while. And some people, you know, it's like, I'll turn, I play the music loud. I like the lights up bright. So you have the seizure thing, and then you also have people that are just sensitive to light. And if you have somebody like that, you know, bring the brightness down and it should be comfortable. The bottom line is no matter what, it should be comfortable. If somebody's uncomfortable, take it off um, and adjust it accordingly to make them comfortable. And if they can't be comfortable on it, then it's it's not for them. But I'd say that's a very, very, very minuscule percentage of the population that are like that. You know, most people, it, it might be a moderate to low intensity is what we call the brightness on any of these machines. You know, whether it's a Roshi or a light and sound device is uh, a measure of how bright. And you see, there's a pretty big difference in how bright that gets when I bring it up and bring it down. And all the devices have similar settings. How's that?
2: That's that's very helpful. Thanks a lot, Christopher. Now, you're the expert in this field, and I'm the ignoramus. And we're very grateful to have the opportunity to Talk to you, but what's the difference between using Roshi Wave and other forms of technology like Muse or Happy? There's one called Happy, which uses electromagnetic stimulation. I understand. Right. Well, they're different types.
0: So the Happy is more like an entrainment device, much like what we talked about with the Light and Sound, where it's going at a specific frequency and it's running a session that changes over time. I actually have one of those, the Happy. I've pretty much everything that comes out, I get it and I try it. And and there's some sessions on it that I kind of like. So, but it's an entrainment device. It's not a disentrainment device like Roshi. It's an entrainment device. It would be more similar to a traditional light and sound machine and and it's electromagnetic, so it's not using light. And electromagnetic will work. Um the original Roshi that Chuck Davis made there were a pair of glasses that went into this and they were called mag stims. And they were electromagn- they were electromagnetic and you would put them on your head and then you could put your regular light glasses on like this. And there were two ports in the, in the front of the unit. So you could plug your magnetic stims, we're pretending these are mag stims here, and it would give you the electromagnetic stimulation and then you would have your light stimulation on the other port. So it's just another route. In the same way that you have in a light and sound machine, you have light and sound, while the third member of that club is electromagnetic. So these devices you're talking about, some of them are, are, are legit and good, and they're just using this third form. It's real interesting when you put all three of them together. or you know, um, now, like I said, Roshi doesn't use sound, and I should answer on this that you can listen to music. So you can listen to any sound you want if you're on the Roshi. I used to have to go, I'll tell a little story if we're not running out of time, but one of my favorite grocery stories to tell is I had been in a car accident and had my neck injured and I would have to go to the chiropractor and the therapy place and they did something called spinal decompression. And this would be like medieval torture from back in the days in old England. And they put, that, they put this thing around, your, around here, around your jaw and it pulls with 35 pounds of weight while you're laying on your back. And it feels like you're in one of those torture devices. Now, the, the session of this lasts about 30 minutes, but it seems like it lasts for hours. And it hurts and it is not comfortable. And so one day I brought this an old, you know, because there was no Roshi back then. I brought the Roshi, uh, Roshi with me. And I was like, wow, that went by fast and it wasn't so bad. So I started bringing that. And then one day I forgot to bring it. And that was like it seemed like three hours, and it was a nightmare. I'm never going to forget the you again. And I know I took off on another. I love taking off on these side side roads on on you, but uh, did that answer your question, or did I get too deviated?
2: No, it certainly answer the question. Um, I'm still not quite sure what the Muse does though.
0: I think the Muse does the same type of thing.
2: Right. The muse,
0: it's a, it's also electromagnetic, and it's also running a session. So you know, like you could, if you had a happy or a Muse, and you had a light and sound machine and you set them to do similar things, you could do them all together. There's one other, there's one other type of stimulation and that's called cranial electric stimulation, CES. And you'll see these devices where they'll have ear clips. So you wet the ear clips and you put them on your ears and then you have a little box and you, you know, it's kind of looks like this with a little knob on it and it adjusts the intensity and you'll have little electric shocks that are being pulsed at a specific rate. and that's another type of therapy that operates and, and changes your brain waves. So there's, that's the fourth route, and I've actually done all four together, <laughs> combining different devices at the same. And the massage chair, which gives you tactile. So you have a fifth a fifth uh, mode going. I used to have a motion bed that was like a, a bed that was on a pivot like this. You would lay on it like so, and it would move with this occipital motion, and then it vibrated. So not only did you have the motion, but you had the vibration. Then you could do the light and sound and the CES, and the magnetic stimulation, and, you know, really check out for a while. So you can stack these things, but if you do, make sure that they're complementary. Don't do, you know, if you have a happy, do a relaxed one when you're doing a relaxed session or a meditation session. Don't do an energized one because it's going to be fighting with each other.
1: We actually interviewed Ariel Garten, if you remember, of this, the founder of Muse, probably over over a year ago. I suppose what I understood from the Muse was that it was encouraging your brain to be in an average range, which actually then might not feel very comfortable to some people because your brain might naturally sit at a more stimulated level than somebody else's brain might be. Yeah, it was interesting to get her take on. On it, as well.
0: it has different sessions, right? There's different choices on it. I know I have one. I just didn't play with it too much. I do have a Muse, and I, I might have played with it only a couple of times. But it has different options, right? Like yes. Yeah. Yeah. So depending on the session, you would choose, like a light and sound machine, you would, you know, just pick one that's congruent with whatever you're doing on your other <laughs> devices and stack them all together, and that shouldn't be an issue.
2: That's all right I was only really going to be facetious. I was going to say, and this is all different from sitting on your back step and having a joint, is it?
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. Although I would say that there are some people that like to combine that as well. There was a guy many years ago named Zoe Seven. Um, he wrote two books. One was called Into the Void, and the other one was called Back to the Void. And he experimented using this light and sound technology with entheogens. I had to remember that word. Entheogens is the word he called it. But they're like, like ayahuasca and DMT and ketamine. And these are all, um, I guess they're drugs. I don't know if that psychedelic is the right word to so anybody who's listening to this knows what they mean. They probably know more about descriptors of them than I do. But he would combine, which they can severely alter your state of consciousness. Okay. All of those things that I just mentioned, he experimented mm-hmm. with these consciousness um, altering chemicals, drugs, flowers, whatever they are, you know, ayahuasca and so on. But he would then combine it with using mind machines. Using light and sound, and he wrote books. He wrote two books about it. Unfortunately, a number of years ago, he died, and so he hasn't written any more books. And the books are probably pretty rare. But if you want to really, you know, they're they're very interesting. Read fascinating character. Very uh, was a great guy. Zoe Seven into the void and back to the void. So yeah, and and there are plenty of people these days that combine, you know, all kinds of different, you know, lack of better word, drugs and such. With this technology, it's certainly something not that, you know, we're not going to advocate and say, hey, go well, out and do drugs, drugs with it. Yeah. it. You know, people are going to do what they're going to do. And we don't sell this kind of stuff or market it for that purpose. But there's people that are going to do that. And there's people that talk about it. And I'm sure there's online forums that, that do. But the thing is, is in a way, this is like a digital drug. So you can get, in effect, like a consciousness-altering substance that you might take into your body, like those, you know, entheogens, I just remembered that word again that is going to change how you feel just in the same way that like a prescription drug will change how you feel. That's a drug. This, you know, light and sound and Roshi and some of these other technologies, the um, post EMF stimulation, post magnetic mm-hmm. stimulation, CES, they change how you feel. And in a way they are kind of like a drug, but without, you know, like, you know, a lot of drugs have bad side effects that you, you know, like make, make it feel good for a while. And then You're paying for it later, whereas this technology doesn't have that drawback. So that's a so that's another thing is that this I have talked to and heard from a number of people who were like they were drug addicts or alcoholics at one time, and that this being you know, light and sound or Roshi or any of these things became their new thing, that when they got clean, they did this instead to get their good feeling. And obviously, this is a heck of a lot better for you because in a way it's like taking your brain to the gym or taking your brain to a relaxation spot that it's a it is good for you it's not doing you know as long as you're not a photosensitive epileptic and you feel comfortable doing this and and Naomi I think you'll agree because you've used Roshi before Mm -hmm. Roshi feels good you know when I'm on it and my massage chair kicks off and 30 minutes is up a lot of times I'm like time 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 And I want to go back just because it feels good and you want to stay there. So it's definitely a better alternative, in my opinion, and probably your doctors as well, that it would be better than doing, you know, some kind of illicit drugs. The doctor may want you on some prescription drug and they may be, you know, on that. But so for some people, this is their, you know, this is their escape. But at least it's doing something positive for them at the same time.
1: Well, if you think about so much of what the humans do that gets them in trouble is often about trying to regulate the nervous system, isn't it? And trying to get into that sense of calmness, whether that be drink, drugs, food, sex, sometimes you know, people are using anything to access. Quite often it's about self-soothing and trying to trying to get their nervous system into a place of place of calm. Christopher, how has your journey with Roshi changed you as a person, either through knowledge or technology? Well,
0: I, I think that it has made me, you know, it does give me a sense of balance where things do not knock me off my spot. If there's something that, like we talked about with the traffic incident happens that might normally, you know, make me lose my temper, mm-hmm. I don't. Or that when there's a crisis and an emergency and I just can keep my calm and my focus. So I think that in some ways, it's just to help me be more balanced all the time and be, and let, and exterior things do not disrupt my inner world. It's much harder to disrupt my inner peace. And of course, just all, I've met a lot of people here. I I never would have met you if it wasn't for this technology. Mm -hmm. And so I've had a lot of, you know, I've met a lot of people, a lot of really interesting people all across the spectrum. You'd be surprised at, you know, people that use this technology. There's famous people, there's people that you've heard their names before that you didn't you know, just, and then there's just people that are just really interesting that you never, you know, never would meet. you know, whether it's like a, an engineer in uh, a NASA engineer or somebody that works at a government agency or military people I actually have some military people like a rehab center that's using Roshi now, but just get to meet a lot of really interesting people in here. And then also the people that are involved in the research with this. know, I'm not a researcher. But I talk to them, and I'm I'm more of a user of the technology, and I have a wide knowledge of this technology. But I don't do research, so you know, I'm meet, meet, meeting, and interacting with them. So it's changed me in that way too. Is that that I've uh, had a lot of interaction with people that never would have either otherwise. I should say
1: that's great. Thank you. And um, so finally, Christopher. But aside from making use of technology, what else do you do to preserve your own well-being?
0: Well, it's I, you know. I love massage chairs. <laughs> massage chair is like my—I'd say my go-to is like you know using the roshi massage chair. Sometimes I ride bicycle. I should exercise a lot more than I do, but my number one thing is roshi and massage chair. That is every day, at least an hour, sometimes longer. <laughs> in between, you know, rather than taking a break and or swimming, in just, I I like swimming, but I would—I would say that yeah, like my big ones are roshi and massage chair.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much. I enjoyed that conversation. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Great. Thanks very much indeed, Christopher.
0: All right. It was great being here. And I hope I was able to answer all your questions and have a great evening over there. And we're going to have a great day over here.
1: Thank you.